Ignition sequence start. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Hey guys, welcome back to Space But Messier. This is Tony, I'll be your host today. And today we're just gonna go over some news and reflect on a really significant person in NASA's history that passed away this week. Uh, this week I didn't have much time to research a topic because we're preparing for Jude, my son's surgery. But um, let's get you up on the news and get going. So now you could see the moon in 4K. NASA, with the help of the high resolution camera of the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, has recreated Apollo 13 crew's trip around the moon only this time it's in 4K. The video uses data gathered from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter spacecraft to recreate some of the stunning views of the moon that the Apollo 13 astronauts viewed on their journey around the far side in 1970. So these visualizations in 4K depict many views of the lunar surface, starting with Earthset and sunrise, and it takes you all the way around the back, all the way um, from when Apollo 13 reestablished radio contact with mission control. Super, super cool. So it is sped up, it's not in real time, but if you wanna see it, I'll post the link in the show notes and you can check it out. Next, the Daily Beast reports that the Pentagon wants to extend the reach of its satellites tens of thousands of miles toward the moon. So it's working on this high-tech atomic powered, it's called nuclear thermal propulsion engine to make it possible. Right now, almost all the satellites between here and the moon are placed in orbit and then left to forever fall around the moon unless acted on by another force. The military's goal is to deploy maneuverable satellites into the vast space between Earth and the moon, or cislunar space as it's called, before China gets there with its own spacecraft. But this isn't the first time that the US government has tried to develop an atomic rocket, and there's no guarantee that the same problems that ended the previous efforts won't also end this one. So the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, which oversees the atomic rocket effort, explains in its budget proposal that the capability afforded by this nuclear thermal propulsion will expand the operating presence of the U.S. in space to the cislunar volume and enhance domestic operations to a new high ground, which is in danger of being defined by the adversary, or here being China. The U.S. and Chinese space agencies, and even private corporations, are eager to mine the moon for minerals that could support deep space missions, potentially including humanity's first trip to Mars. So DARPA's budget request in 2021 asks for $21 million for the Demonstration Rocket for Agile Cislunar Operations Program, or DRACO. Yeah, NASA literally has a Harry Potter reference um, acronym called DRACO. Super cool. So Congress gave DARPA $10 million in 2020 to start studying the Draco engine, and the 2021 budget would allow the agency to start building components. So the plan is for DARPA to test Draco before heading it over to the U.S. Air Force for routine operations and building and things like that. Draco is basically a small nuclear reactor atop a space rocket, and so the reactor heats up a propellant like hydrogen that accelerates through the nozzle and it pushes the satellite in the opposite direction. So these nuclear thermal engines aren't for launching, launching from Earth, um, or rather Earth's surface, but they're for cruising around long distances throughout space and maneuvering a lot while keeping closer to Earth. So they don't need all that propulsion like you see taking off um, from Florida or anything like that. But the moon is 240,000 miles from Earth, and most man-made satellites orbit no more than a few thousand miles from Earth's surface. The United States and China are both in a scramble to fill that gap. Next up in the news, would you like to make $15,000? 
According to the Tampa-based Channel 10 News, you can enter your designs for NASA's next rover for exploring Venus. After sending four rovers to Mars and a fifth launching soon, the 2020 rover, NASA is now eyeing Venus for future research missions. And the space agency needs the public's help to design the perfect rover that can survive Venus's hellish landscape. On Venus, the second planet from the sun, temperatures can reach more than 840 degrees Fahrenheit. The surface pressure on the planet can also be 90 times that of Earth, nine zero times that of Earth. That level of pressure can turn lead into a puddle and easily crush a nuclear-powered submarine. So many missions have visited Venus, but only about a dozen of them have reached the surface of the planet before being destroyed by the heat and the pressure. Soviet Vega 2 was the last spacecraft to touch Venus in 1985, that's 35 years ago. Despite Venus's hellish environment, scientists say that it and Earth are basically sibling planets, but they say at one point that Venus took a turn and became inhospitable. More on that in our episode on climate change, which I'm still researching and is it's going to be a beefy episode. So Jonathan Souter, a senior mechatronics engineer at JPL, uh, he says that by getting on the ground and exploring Venus, we can understand what caused Earth and Venus to diverge on widely different paths and can explore a foreign world right in our backyard that can maybe give us some insight into if this greenhouse effect and climate change is going to be our fate. Now, it's called the Exploring Hell, Avoiding Obstacles on a Clockwork Rover competition aims to get public input for a sensor that can be incorporated into a future Venus rover. NASA said the biggest challenge is designing a sensor that doesn't rely on electronic systems, which fail during exposure to more than 250 degrees Fahrenheit. Submissions are now open through May 29th. The first place prize is 15,000, second place prize is 10,000, and the third uh, place prize is $5,000 USD, I should say. Uh, so I'm gonna put a link to apply to that in the show notes if you're interested. Now, the main portion or the main section of this episode that I wanted to focus on was remembering a woman named Katherine Johnson. Katherine Johnson, according to NASA, passed away on February 24th, 2020, at the age of 101, after living a life filled with trailblazing achievements at NASA. But why should you care? And why is she so important? With International Women's Day coming up on Sunday, March 8th, I think we should take a look. So being handpicked to be one of the three black students to integrate West Virginia's graduate schools is something that most people would consider one of their life's most notable moments, but it's just one of the breakthroughs that have marked Katherine Johnson's long and remarkable life. Born in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, by 13 she was attending high school on the campus of historically black West Virginia State College, and at 18 she enrolled in the college itself, graduated with highest honors in 1937, and took a job teaching at black public schools in Virginia. And let me just remind you, this is in 1930s where civil rights is not nearly where it is today. That's a whole different, I'm not even going to get into that. Uh, but this is a huge deal. In 1953, Johnson began working in the all-black West Area Computing Section of the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. That's NACA, what NASA used to be before it was NASA. Just two weeks into her tenure in the office, she was assigned to a project in the Flight Research Division, and Catherine's temporary position became a permanent position. In 1957, she provided some of the math for the 1958 document, Notes on Space Technology, which was basically a compendium of a series of lectures given by engineers in the Flight Research Division, and um, engineers from those groups formed the core of the Space Task Group, the NACA's first official foray into space travel, and Catherine, who worked with many of them since coming from Langley, uh, she came with the program, and then that next year, that program became NASA. So 
in that kind of turn of events and just by publishing that paper, she was included in that group that formed NASA. She also did trajectory analysis for Alan Shepard's May 1961 mission, Freedom 7, uh, America's first human spaceflight. And then in 1960, she co-authored a report called, stay with me, Determination of Azimuth Angle at Burnout for Placing a Satellite Over a Selected Earth Position, laying out the equations describing an orbital spacecraft in which the landing position over the spacecraft is specified. It was the first time a woman in the flight research division had received credit as an author on a research report. So already she is making waves in the scientific community. Then in 1962, as NASA prepared for the orbital mission of John Glenn, Katherine Johnson was called upon to do the work that she would become most known for. The complexity of the orbital flight had required the construction of a worldwide communications network linking tracking stations around the world to IBM computers in Washington, D.C., Cape Canaveral, and Bermuda. The computers had been programmed with the orbital equations that would control the trajectory of the capsule in Glenn's mission from blastoff to splashdown, but the astronauts were wary of putting their lives in the care of the electronic calculating machines, which were prone to hiccups and blackouts. So as part of the pre-flight checklist, Glenn asked engineers to go get the girl, in quotes, Katherine Johnson, to run the same numbers through the same equations that had been programmed into the computer, but by hand, on her desktop mechanical calculating machine. If she says they're good, Katherine Johnson remembers the astronaut saying, then I'm ready to go. Glenn's flight was a success, and it marked a turning point in the competition between the United States and the Soviet Union in space. And if you want to learn more, or if you're, you're thinking this sounds familiar, just watch Hidden Figures. That movie is about her. Well, she's one of the women in the movie. Uh, so today, we remember her life and her contributions to space travel. Today, that's really all I have for you. Tomorrow, my son Jude goes into surgery at 8.30 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, I know I've kind of teased it on the, the podcast a little bit, but he was born with what's called imperforate anus. So basically, his um, his large intestine didn't grow fully to the end of his digestive tract. It um, kind of latched on somewhere else by by accident. So what they're going to do tomorrow morning is they're going to go in, they're going to detach his colon from where it grew to, they're going to bring it to the end of his digestive tract, and they're going to create an anus there because he was born without a butthole. Um, so it's a really in-depth surgery, and I, we have full trust in the doctors, but it doesn't change the fact that they're going to put a three-month-old out for three hours to do the surgery. So um, if you like to think, then keep him in your thoughts. If you like to pray, please keep Jude in your prayers. 8.30 a.m. Pacific time, and I would really appreciate that. So um, that's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening and sharing your the limited time you have to listen to podcasts um, with this one. Please rate and review our podcast to let us know how we're doing and support us on Patreon if you're feeling so called. Thanks for joining, guys, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. That was definitely an e-ticket.